here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American singer-songwriter guitarist. It's the one and only Sid Griffin, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff was in the, and still is, in the Long Riders, but has also been in other bands called, including the Cole Porters, has got various solo um, events coming up, touring with Peter Case, and also with the Long Riders, they've got a reissue of their first album that's come out on Cherry Red Records. This is the record that was released in 1984, Native Sons, and that's been given the repackaged treatment from Dear Old Cherry Red, which is a triple CD box set with great sleeve notes, bonus material, live recordings, and everything you've ever wanted. Um, but you're going to find out more about all that stuff in the interview. I will put links in the notes below for you to... Um, on. Anyway, after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. See, it's all over to you. Uh, the Beatles being on the Ed Sullivan show in America is the big, uh, it's the big bang of so much. I mean, you can talk to guys in uh, the Eagles, or you can talk to Chrissy Hine of the Pretenders, or... Uh, just about it. the guys in the birds and the love and spoonful and then younger guys like myself and the people in Devo. And I mean, that was huge. The Beatles being on the Ed Sullivan show in February, 1964 was huge. I mean, it was, it, it was seismic. It yes. Changed, it changed the landscape. And at that point I was already listening to, to rock and roll radio and pop music, but I didn't think about wanting to play it or be a part of that world. So Beatles were on Ed Sullivan and which, at which time I thought, God, I'd love to be a part of that world and actually do it. Yes. And did you grow up in Kentucky? Was that your... Yeah, yeah I grew up in Kentucky. Yeah. Yes. I was uh, One of my favorite albums of the early 70s was um, Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And I always remember there was... Um, there's a track that mentions Kentucky, which I always found quite evocative as a very young child. Um, Roy Rogers, I think, or one of those ones on side four. It was a classic, anyway. So, uh, and yeah. did your and were your parents? Did they did they have any musical or artistic direction in life? No, my grandmother played the classical violin in, a, in an orchestra, and uh, and she was uh, guardedly optimistic about me being a musician. But I think she was dismayed by the Beatles. But my parents, no. No, not at all. So as, as the as the 60s, because you were born 55, so you were yeah. nine when you saw them on the Ed Sullivan show. So as that sort of decade progressed, obviously this was a perfect musical awakening of experiencing and seeing all these things happening. What was it like as we got to 67 and the summer of love? Because you would have been, you know, getting to that got age. Better and better and better and better as far as I was concerned, pop music. And it's funny, my son's 14 and I listened to the music he listens to. And, and by the time I was 12, I was listening to Sgt. Pepper. It was just, besides all this rubbish about it's the signpost of the era and it's the hippie summer of love and it's the greatest album ever made. Besides all that silliness, it's just a really great uh, recording for a young person to listen to. And I was listening to it at age 12. It yes. didn't really occur to me that it was any kind of, a, you know, a major cultural 
event that, but i just listened to that music and then of course when my i was my son's noah's age he's just now left the room i was listening to the white album and that uh, yellow submarine soundtrack which had like five new beatles songs or four new beatles songs on it and and the other popular acts of the day so that stuff is just being poured in my ears yes well that was interesting no wonder i didn't want to uh do it you know. No, absolutely. Well, it was interesting because um, when it came to sort of about 73, 74, my brother started getting, he was seven years older than me, started getting his record collection together, which mostly consisted of prog rock of that period of Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash. But he did also buy two other albums, which had a huge influence. One, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which I found fascinating. But the other one was Sgt. Pepper. And um, obviously he forbid me to go into his room to play these records. And obviously I, I creeped in and listened to them without any idea. This was 73 and I was probably about, yeah, quite young as well. Yeah, I suppose about 10, actually. So, yeah, at that, that, that age, and was absolutely mesmerised with all these songs and became yeah. fascinated with that track called Good Morning, which I just thought had this amazing beat and this really incredible story that went throughout that, that song. But each, each one from, you know, She's Leaving Home to, um, yes, Lovely Rita, they all just seemed so interesting. And then you'd sort of put them back and have to sort of keep it as a big secret not to tell him that... I'd been played his records, but uh, yeah, Sergeant Pepper has massive. And and when and when that came out, obviously there was no big cultural thing, was there? A bit like when you listened to it, it there was no like this is going to be the most important record of all time. No, I mean uh, it was just the music of the day. And then years later, all this guff was written about it, which may or may not be true. But uh, it was just it just seemed like the world was in black and white, and the world of the Beatles and Motown and Stax Volt Soul Records and uh, I don't know, the Who's Tommy. It seemed that world was in Technicolor and the day-to-day -day world that I existed and so many of us existed in a place like Kentucky was just monochromatic. And that was part of the attraction. Uh, it just looked like, sounded like, seemed like the Beatles and whomever lived in some wonderfully indescribable fantasy land of colors and events and importance and each day was special and that i lived in a black and white world going to a boring school doing boring things with a boring life being laid out in front of me yes like that so there was a there was a uh, cultural uh impact as i keep saying besides just the music the whole pop world seemed like so much fun and you'd watch a show like ed sullivan which was just a variety show like saturday night at the london palladium it's just a variety show and you had these idiots spinning plates on sticks and uh some comedians were funny some comedians were not funny and people from broadway shows would be doing choreography and it was all very good and well if you like that kind of thing and then all of a sudden say the rolling stones would come on and sing let's spend the night together or uh, whoever, the Mamas and Papas, the Jefferson Airplane, the Supremes, the Temptations, whomever would come on. And it would just seem so much more exciting and vibrant and new and different that it was impossible for me not to uh, want to get sucked into that world. And yes. that's what I've done ever since, really. But then at the age of 15, you know, the, the end of one decade, which was going very well with the Summer of Love and lots of Technicolor stuff, and we had obviously all the other bands from the West Coast and people like The Doors as well, and The Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, 
and all that groovy stuff. And then suddenly you're thinking, oh, Jimi Hendrix was amazing, Janis Joplin, Morrison, they're all fantastic, you know, and there's early Rolling Stones. And then sort of Brian, jo Brian Jones passes off, passes, and then, you know, Joplin, Morrison and uh, Hendrix all die. What was it like as you were going from, you know, like 15 when you very become very aware of these people to suddenly thinking, that's a bit of a drag? Well, I, I, I remember when... Uh, um the sort of death started piling up at the end of the sixties quite well. Because Hendrix died on my birthday when I was uh, uh, 15 years old. And um, I remember that quite well, but I, I, I guess it's why I'm not, I've never really been a druggie. People always, sometimes musicians nudge me and ask me about what psychedelic drugs and all this stuff have you done? And I don't really have anything to say because I, I uh, grew up in a period when a lot of these uh, heroes died and it didn't seem to me like a, a glorious ending that Hendrix died that way or that Morrison died that way or Janis Joplin and many of the others that weren't that worldly famous. It just seemed like a, a very grim way to go. Bizarrely, uh, years later, I, I was in L.A. living uh, with uh, off and on with Eric Burden, the singer of the animals, who was a dear, dear friend of many of these people, especially Jimi Hendrix. He saw Hendrix the last night Hendrix was alive. And, uh, you know, he, he, he saw my point. He, uh, he had psychedelic experience, but I really didn't. And it's because all these people died. Yes. So they, um, did Vietnam, you know, this was in the background. Did that slightly make you feel a bit paranoid and sort of freaked out that things yeah I, I, i'm old enough that i had the i was in the last two drafts for vietnam the last two uh drafts for the vietnam war and my number was really low so i missed both of them but um when i was say 13 14 we had an older boy 12 13 14 we had an older boy i'll leave his name out of this he was 19 well he wasn't 19 then he was about 17 then cutting mowing our lawn because he had a power mower that went well this you know and i couldn't my mother wouldn't let me near that power mower because it ran on petrol and i'd cut my foot off and so this kid came over and for what four bucks or whatever mowed the lawn to make money as kids did in suburban america and he was drafted and was dead within two years in vietnam and uh i really admired him and his friends they you know they had the uh haircuts of the day and they went to high school dances with pretty girls and and uh, a local band would play Rolling Stones and Beatles covers and I just thought what a cool guy and then he, he, he was dead so Vietnam uh, this and in fact I, I went to the Vietnam wall and put the paper on his name and rubbed the thing on it and sent it home to my folks yeah you get an embossed embossed name of your uh, deceased friend or loved one and uh, it was very very sad it really brought it home it yes, I, I could imagine. Heart was gone. Sort of an older brother figure was gone. I know. God, that's um, a little bit too real. So when you got to sort of 16, 18, did you leave college at that time or did you go to university and sort I, of... Further... I went to university, I must confess, to kind of get out of the house. I, uh, I went to the University of South Carolina, which is 502 miles from my house because I used to drive it in the car. And I looked at the speedometer when I started and stopped. It was 502 miles from our driveway to the parking lot in the back of my dormitory at the University of South Carolina. And those 502 miles prepared me for what I was purposely, a lot of my friends went to local universities mm -hmm. and stayed with their friends and in their uh, comfort zone. And I knew to quote unquote, be in the record industry, I was going to have to, I was going to have to leave the comfort zone. So university was my big 
test. And I went to this school where I didn't know anybody, anybody. I didn't know anybody. And that prepared me for then moving to California four years later and 15 years after that, moving to London. Yes. For what I was doing in life. Yeah. So and I, when I went to university, but I, I went knowing I wasn't going to do what I got my degree in, which I didn't know. I think I think during the 70s and 80s, university was that stepping stone for a lot of people to uh, learn how to leave home for the first time and have those three, three years of uh, just being three, somewhere. I agree. Yeah. Yes. And um, and often they looked at a map and went, what's the furthest place from my parents? Oh, over there. I'm going to. I did fly. that. I mean, I, I feel almost guilty saying that my parents have been dead for some time, but it's true. What's the furthest place from my parents I'll be able to get away with? And that was it. <laughs> There you go. No more, no more sort of messing back. So when did a musical instrument sort of land in your life? When did you start thinking, this is it? I'm not going to. Very specific. For my birthday in 1965, when I was 10 years old, I got a acoustic guitar from my grandmother, who was the aforementioned classical violinist and very accomplished one she was. However, I only learned two or three chords and stopped. I didn't know anything about the guitar. And I got an instruction booklet. And I didn't know that the strings are supposed to be closer to the fretboard. It had a very poor action where the strings are up where this finger is that I'm wiggling. Yes. And where my thumb is. It was just ridiculous. You could get a sandwich in between the, 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 the strings and the fretboard. So it was very difficult to play, and I quit playing. However, in February of 1970, uh, I, I think I even gave that guitar away. I, I, I convinced my mother on a whim to buy a cheap acoustic guitar used for $30 at a uh, established rec uh, music store that she knew. I don't know what we were doing in the music store. She didn't play anything anyway. And she gave me this for $30. She bought this thing on a whim. And I was, it wasn't much better of an acoustic guitar. But my point is the second time around four and a half years later, I looked at that piece of garbage acoustic guitar and thought, whatever it takes to play this thing, I'm going to learn. If I have to bleed, I'm going to bleed. If I cut my fingers open, I cut my fingers open. If I get a tetanus wound and an infection, I'll get an infection. And it was misery to learn on that guitar, but I learned the chords and uh, eventually got an electric guitar from a cousin of mine who played in a rock group. And uh, I was away with the races. But I, I will say, uh, my hat's off to anybody that's learning the, the guitar for the first time because it is difficult to learn the first three, four months of guitaring. And it is particularly difficult to have a garbage guitar like I did. Yes. This is always this is always the case. I think this is why a lot of people give up because they think oh, I'll just go and put the record on and and uh, pretend to be playing in the band, but not really ever making it. So then, what was your first concert that you went to? What was the first gig and first album you bought? Well, I had seen um, local bands play and was thrilled by that. What we call the, the garage band scene in America was huge in the '60s. Neighborhoods like that monkey song. Uh, Pleasant Valley Sunday, the local rock group down the street is trying hard to learn their song. Well, yes. that was the truth in the suburbs. There's always those bands playing and they do a little gig locally or the local high school or junior high school. But the first um, proper gig I can remember paying money to go see is I took a date. This is very exciting to see James Taylor, who had Carol King in the band and she was the opening act. And so that was my first you know, out of town, big show was James Taylor with Carol King in March 1971. I mean, 
he was probably still with Car- um, Carly Simon at that stage, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I went out with this. Uh, I, it was the girl wanted to go. I liked that music. It was popular, but I didn't. I was a head over heels. But I wanted to impress the girls, so I got tickets and we went. And that was the first name uh, that I saw play. But I saw garage bands before that, where you had to buy a ticket some of the times. But that's the first household name pop star that I, I paid to see. Yeah. Yes. So how were you navigating the dear old 70s? Because there was the, the birth of heavy metal with people like uh, Black Sabbath and Deep Purple, then prog rock. There was glam rock. There was kind of, I suppose, pub rock that was starting to develop as well and some other bits and pieces. So where was your sort of musical journey taking you at this Middle stage? America, a lot of those genres didn't exist. Middle America didn't know or care for glam. There was you know, just something in, that you read in the pop press that there's this guy, David Bowie, the makeup. Bowie, none of, Bo, Slade played my hometown my senior year of high school, and I think they drew 500 people in a 3,000-seat auditorium. At yeah. the time, they were mega in the United Kingdom. You know, Mama, we're all crazy now. Come on, feel the noise. Uh, here's to you, Merry Christmas. All those hits, they played to 500 people in my hometown. I mean, it, glam didn't m- mean much. Prague and heavy metal never meant much to me, but I did. I I went to see. Uh, I saw Neil Young play. I saw Linda Ronstadt play. I saw the Allman Brothers play. Early Allman Brothers, and they were actually quite good. I saw Curtis Mayfield play on the strength of the Superfly soundtrack. Um, I saw Marvin Gaye's only tour of the of, of the last twenty five years of his life. I saw Marvin Gaye. I'm one of the few people that saw Marvin Gaye live. Wow! Uh, and I. Uh, I, I went to the more, in my opinion, legitimate rock acts of the day. I'm trying to think who else I saw. You know, I don't know, Amy Lou Harris and people. And it was a, it, it was a lot of fun. And um, but I, as I say, Prague and 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 uh, glitter didn't really exist much in Middle America. I mean, years later, Yes had hits, but I never saw Yes or any of that stuff. No. It's funny. I used to know. You've caught me on the hop. I'm trying. I used to go downtown all the time. It was the same place they played. Oh, I'll tell you. I saw back in the day. My first ever sort of club gig was Rory Gallagher in 1974. Years down the line, I've already been like, whatever, 12, 20 shows. I don't know. I saw yeah. Rory Gallagher play like a 300, 400 seat club, and he just tore it up. He was unbelievable. Like Kurt Cobain in a check shirt and ripped jeans, long before Kurt Cobain wore that stuff. Yes, absolutely. And then, and then in this country, we started having people like Brinsley Schwartz, and then Graham Park and the Rumors, and then uh, I don't know, Doctors of Madness, Doctor Feelgood. You know that pub rock that merged a little bit into punk rock. What was that like by the mid, the mid seventies? You would have been twenty at this stage. Were you still sort of sticking with your singer songwriters, or were you thinking I might need to rock a bit here? No, no, I was. I'd moved away. I wasn't really a singer-songwriter guy. The girl wanted to go. And uh, although I liked James Taylor, he wasn't my hero or anything. Um, uh, I wanted to impress the date. Sure, I've got tickets and all that stuff. <laughs> and, uh, I guess by the I 75, I saw Ronstadt a second time. And uh, trying to think, who I saw Willie Nelson play. He was actually quite good. Then I realized seeing him years later and then years after that, he does the same show every time. He does the exact same show every time, except in the middle of Willie Nelson's show, he interjects like four or five songs from his latest album. Other than that, it's the exact same show. I mean, the exact, I mean, the same covers. It's like, what the hell's going on there? <laughs> uh, I saw Waylon Jennings. I saw a lot of country and Western guys. And uh, it was, it was, 
it was just, again, it seemed like a, a different, uh, you know, it, it seemed like that they were colorful and my life was boring. Whatever I saw, they were colorful and my life was boring. That's yes. What I really remember is, uh, is I knew writers of the Purple Sage. I saw them a few times. I just would see these bands and it looked like they're having such fun. And here I was a student and I'm going to get some mundane job and live in middle America. And that was it. There you go. So when did you start sort of apart from, you know, your early years of sort of rehearsing and practice? And when did you start to form or become part of the, you know, being in a band? Because you were in the band called, was it The Unclaimed? And, uh, yeah. yeah, the leader of The Unclaimed just died about, uh, he reformed the band after being a, a agoraphobic. Uh, he wouldn't leave the house. And he reformed the band after like 25 years. And they were out doing gigs this last four or five years. And the poor guy died. Oh, no. What was his name? Shelley, S-H-E-L-L-E-Y, like the poet, Gans, oh, yeah. G-A-N-Z. And Shelley Gans died about a month ago today and uh, at age 66. And, um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I had a high school band that wasn't very good. And, well, none of them are. You're, in, you're a kid. You're in high school. And, uh, but it, it gave me the taste for performing. I, re I really liked it. I liked, the, I liked playing in front of my peer groups. I liked the kids looking at me. And uh, I will tell you a funny story about the first more legitimate gig we ever played the first big gig we ever played this rich kid hired us from a local high school because we had a small reputation and i had a vox super beetle amp i was so dumb i didn't realize the american super beetle amps were garbage they were made for the lowest quality they just rented the name from the vox people in england who made proper amps for the beetles etc so i had this bad box amp and I made from a do-it-yourself kit a fuzz box. I couldn't afford a fuzz box for like $40, but I could afford a $12 fuzz box that you assembled yourself in your house. So when we assembled my fuzz box, we burnt some of the transistors, so it made this hissing noise. The moment you plugged it in, it went, Long story short is we went on stage to perform, and we got an introduction. And the first song at this high school dance or party I was playing was Funk 49 by the James Gang. Okay. Mm. And when I plugged in and hit the, uh, it was nine o'clock. And when I plugged in at nine o'clock, we were introduced and stepped on the fuzz box. It picked up the TV signal from the nearest house. So loud and clear through my amp came this snowy sound. And then came the, uh, which is the theme to a Raymond Massey TV show called Ironsides about oh, a detective, yes. about a detective who's in a wheelchair, hence his, you know, chief Ironsides. Yes. And so all the kids were dying of laughter because through my amp at a fairly loud volume was this and and tonight Raymond Massey is Ironsides. And this TV theme came out and the kids were all laughing. So uh it's funny now, but at the time I was almost in tears. I mean, God, Ironside, yes, I'd forgotten that classic. And the and the Rockford Files was another one, wasn't it? Yes. It all it's all there. So that was it. As we were as we were trucking up, you were this is the Jimmy Carter period, wasn't it, really? You were sort of at that point in life, which yeah. was slightly I, I, I knew I was gonna get out of university and go to California. I knew it. So uh Did you finish university at this stage? Yeah, I've got a degree in journalism. Nice. Oh, that's handy. It's been nice for writing books and writing for Q and Mojo and stuff like that. But I don't, 
I don't pursue it as heavily as I used to. No. Well, anyway, but but it's good good for your son's homework. Then and then sort of yes. your move to LA was this kind of you got everything, got it in the car. And well, just... I, I went to New York. This is interesting because the punk thing was very exciting. These when I read about the Sex Pistols, I'd never heard of them. It took me months to hear them. I kept reading about this band called the Sex Pistols starting in, I guess, July 1976. I started reading about the Sex Pistols, but I only saw pictures of them. But I saw pictures of them and reviews. The pictures and reviews, but the reviews actually said they're young, they're exciting, but they're not very good. And I thought, well, I'm young, I'm exciting, and I'm not very good. If they can do it, I can do it. And that the Sex Pistols will never know this, but the, in, a, in a way, they're a great inspiration to me. So uh, I went out west to uh, have a band. And true story, when I, I'd never heard the Sex Pistols. You couldn't get those two or three first singles in my hometown for love nor money. So I drove to California and the, the, the afternoon I came into uh, the LA radio uh, area where you could pick up this LA FM stations. I spun the dial from left to right. And on the right of the station was Rodney Bingenheimer. Oh yes. Rodney. On Rodney on the rock. So my first day in LA, it's rush hour. So we're moving really slowly in traffic and I just got off the freeway uh, I'm way east of town, but I'm in the L.A. signal, right? And Rodney comes on and says, hi, it's Rodney on the Rock. And uh, get your tape recorders ready because uh, I'm going to play all three Sex Pistols singles. First, I'm going to play the three A sides. Then I'm going to play the three B sides. So get your tape recorders ready because people could tape it on a cassette off the air. And I sat there in a uh, Taco Bell parking lot drinking a Coca-Cola listening to the first Sex Pistols I'd ever heard. He played the three A-sides, Anarchy in the UK, God Save the uh, Queen, and I think the third one's Holidays in the Sun, I think. Yes. And the B-sides were Did You Know Wrong um, and uh, No Fun, and I can't remember what the third B-side is. And I heard my first Sex Pistols when I got to L.A., just like in the movies. I got to L.A., and there were the Sex Pistols on the radio. Stunning. Good old Rodney on the Rocks, actually. Yes, and Taco Bell. That was... Fond memories of Taco Bell when we were desperate. Um, yes. So there, then we had the Reagan years in the 80s. So how did you then sort of navigate those early years in L.A. before? Well, they, they were marvelous. I'm, I'm always amazed when I meet so many British people that hate Los Angeles because, uh, A, it's got the, the Santa Monica now has surpassed Singapore and Hong Kong as having the largest uh, expat British community on earth. So I'm always amazed when Brits say they hate L.A. Oh, you got to drive everywhere. There is no center and all this. So, I mean, I loved L.A. I thought, as my friend Peter Case described it, it was like when someone found out your house, your, par- <laughs> your parents were away for the weekend and the house was yours. That was what L.A. was like. It's like mom and dad are gone, but they've left us in the house and they left us a couple hundred bucks for food and the TV works and we can have our friends over for a party and they'll never know. We'll just clean up before they get back. And that's LA. I agree. Peter Case's description is perfect. It was it was heavenly. There was bands everywhere. Um, easy to make friends. Sun shone every day. Great excitement, and you don't have responsibilities. I mean, now I've got you know my son's upstairs. We're doing homework, and now I'm old guy with responsibilities. But then I was young and. Yes, absolutely. I know. Well, Lemmy, Lemmy moved to uh, LA, didn't he? I think the sun, the, the the sort of easy life. And I have to say, you know, we fell in love with Las Vegas because it was always sunny. You know, you, and it was it was relatively cheap back in those 
earlier years and um, you just had a nice time, saw lots of shows and um, yeah. didn't have any responsibilities. What not to like? Yeah, I, I always like going to Vegas because in the lounge, they'd have these famous people for free. Many people don't understand you only pay to see the larger acts like Frank Sinatra or the Beach Boys or Tony Bennett. Or at the time, Helen Reddy was a, a, a major draw and, and you've got a dinner and a meal and saw a show. Yes. I tried to explain to my friends because I said, you don't even gamble. No, I don't gamble. But you could go to Las Vegas and for free, see, see, see somebody like uh, Jerry Lee Lewis in the lounge for free. Nothing. Not a pay a bean. And you could go up and down the strip and see these legendary performers for, for nothing. They had one or two hits and faded, and you know, or four hits. And they faded away. And uh, it was a steady paycheck. And it was free. I mean, you can't beat that. No, absolutely. I know Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was always a great book for sort of evoking that sense of... Yes, it certainly yeah, was. It was. It was all good. So then how did the, the, the band then sort of merge together and sort of form? How did you get to meet each other at this stage? There was this, I met the drummer Greg Souders of the Long Riders through uh, just mutual friends, and we just liked each other's people. And then there was this magazine, a free tabloid giveaway newspaper that was at supermarkets called the recycler and the recycler as anyone will tell you put together helped put together x with john doe and xine it helped to put together the go-go's it helped put together the bangles it helped to put together uh the long riders it helped put the, the, the green on red guys find a drummer because the recycler was that's a few minor stories and then it was like if you want to sell your car it was free so uh, you could buy an ad, a bigger ad, but you could have like a three-line classified ad for free. So you'd have like drummer wanted, uh, must have short hair for punk band or, or drummer wanted for prog rock band, uh, long hair and beard welcome, that kind of thing. And that's how many, many bands in L.A., many bands in L.A. met each other. Yes, it was it was the ads, actually. Because when you yeah. did your first EP, which was at 10, 5, 60, it was produced by this guy called Earl Mankey, isn't it? Yeah, he worked for the Beach Boys and he helped form Sparks, but he left after the first album. Yes, uh, but also his brother is called James and he was a, a guitarist with a band called the, the Concrete Blondes or Blonde. Yes. Which both, both the Mankeys are genius guitar players in the Jeff Beck mold, but... Um, Concrete Blonde, James Concrete Blonde, that was Michael Stipe's idea for the band name, a great name. And uh, the, the Earl was, uh, they were half Nelson and they were becoming Sparks, and Earl was making steadier money engineering for people like the Beach Boys. So he quit to work with uh, uh, Brian Wilson and, and Carl Wilson on the albums like Sunflower and Surf's Up. And uh, and he boy, I mean, he just was a name. I mean, I knew who Earl Mankey was. I was thrilled he wanted to work with us. Yes. Did you, um, at that stage, when did you, or when had you started writing songs? When was this kind of transition between I, just... I had written songs as a kid. They were all terrible. And around The Unclaimed, I wrote two songs on our four-song EP that The Unclaimed put out. Hold on one second. It's, it got reissued a couple of years ago. Oh, on... Yes. It got reissued a couple of years ago on an Italian label called Misty Lane. They got the original tracks and they uh, got the original tracks and they, um, isn't that amazing? Yes. And they uh, remastered it and remixed it. I don't know how they got the multi-tracks. 
So this is much better. It sounds 10 times better now than it did on the original thing we put out. So anyway, Misty Lane Records out of Italy put it out. And I'm very proud of it. Hold on one second. I'll put it back. It falls over. And uh, I'm very proud of it. And um, I wrote two of the songs. And the late Shelly Gans wrote two of the songs. And that's when I realized my songs are starting to get better. Yes. Well, well pretty crummy throughout the 60s and 70s, I must say. But 10, 10, 10, 560, how did this song come about and what was this? That's an address on, uh, on Wilshire Boulevard. Right. I it's just thought it was catchy. And then people would ask me about it and I'd made up, I'd say it's the point of a quasar in the galaxy and just rubbish. But it's actually the address of a building on uh, Wilshire Boulevard, which is still there. Yes. And how long did you spend in the studio at this stage for the... the Earls? Yes. I don't really remember. It's about 1982 or 1983, and it's been so long. I do remember he's a great guy, and I liked working with him. Um, I don't think he was overly impressed with our musicianship because we were so young and green. And also his stories were just amazing about, you know, I jammed with Jeff Beck, and I engineered for Brian Wilson, and uh, I did this, and, I, you know, we were just – I was in awe of uh, Earl Mankey, just in awe of him. Well, I know. I don't really, I, I'm not trying to be – Coy, I just don't really remember how long it took. Yes, but obviously with that, suddenly you you got the sort of nucleus and the sort of the energy to start the first album. Can you remember the kind of the next 12 months before uh, Native yeah. Sons the, came? The, the EP did a lot better than we th really imagined. Uh, uh, what was it called? The Gavin Report, which is a radio playlist firm up in San Francisco, got a hold of the EP and there's a guy named Peter something up there at the Gavin Report. I can't remember Peter's last name. And he and the gang, the young hip guys there, I mean, not the, not the old hippie guys or even the older guys, the young hip guys there, because college radio, indie radio, punk rock, new wave, whatever you want to call it, was kind of a genre they didn't want to know anything about. And so these young guys at the Gavin Report were given the 10560 EP, and they said how great it was, and I owe them whatever they were the first out of town people to make a fuss over us the gavin report and i wish i could remember peter's name i can see his face now caucasian male and he had short short back and sides like a banker he wasn't like a rock and roll guy at all and he he, he and his crew wrote about it and that that went out to commercial stations and uh nationwide so that got us going and then we got signed by lisa fancher's frontier records which was a hip local indie label of Southern California. She had money. She'd sold 100,000 copies of the Adolescence album, whose name escapes me. It had a hit on it called Amoeba that Rodney was playing on uh, Rodney on the Rock. So Lisa had money, and she put out uh, on Frontier Records the Native Sons album, which is now the three-CD box set. Yes. Blimey. So when did you, I mean, with the album, which is it's just is celebrating its 40th anniversary, so did you have that kind of, you know, four or five years ago, think, oh, we should start to sort of think yes. about sort of doing something about this. Yeah, it's the 40th anniversary, so we should do something. And in October, we're going to tour behind it. We wanted to tour behind it beforehand, but we uh, were on different, no one lives near each other. We all live in three to four different parts of the world. So, uh, we can't get together till October, so I'm doing other other tours and things till then. And then in October, we're going to tour the Native Sons album. Blimey. Are you going to do one of those classic going from side 
The first yeah. track on side A to side B. Yeah, yes. The first track on side A to the album in order, in order. And uh, I look forward to the challenge. And with your, at this stage, you had two different producers. Was that um, tricky to find somebody to sort of capture the sound? Uh, Henry Louis, who did uh, the Native Sons album, was just a genius. He worked with the Bones Howe as the main engineer. And that means he did the hits for like the Fifth Dimension and the Association and so many of these uh, 60s uh, harmony bands. And then he worked for the Flying Burrito Brothers with Chris Hillman and Graham Parsons. So Henry Louis was, he was nobody's fool. I really adored Henry Louis. I just thought the world of him. He was a great producer. He's no longer with us. I remember Henry Louis and I, were, I would get there early to hang out with him. And he'd get in the studio and fix things up because he wasn't just a producer. He was an engineer. He had an assistant named uh, Phil something from Boston. But he, he Henry Louis was an engineer as well as a producer. And he, he got there early and I'd get there early to hang out with him. And he told me once, always get your money up front in the record industry. Always get your money up front. Never settle for a percentage of the profits down the line. And I asked him one morning, did that ever go backwards on you? You always got your money up front. But did they ever say, look, if you don't take any money now, we'll give you like 6% of the project down the line for, you know, in perpetuity. And he said, once it backfired. And I said, what was that? And he said, Easy Rider. And I said, what? He said, yes, I did the audio for Easy Rider for, for Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper. And if they if I'd have accepted their like 1% of the film, uh, I'd have been set for life. But I, I didn't take it. I took whatever it was, $50,000 up front, and I could have made you know, millions. Because that, that movie, it, 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 it played around the world for like two years. It, yes. Huge. But then there was a lot of movies that we never have sort of come across ever since that was made of that time. But yeah, for some reason. Yeah, so Henry, was... Henry said the one time it didn't work. So that was a lesson learned. But that's the kind of thing I like to hear Henry. He was a genius. I'm not yes, a... absolutely. And when the album came out, did you suddenly find yourself becoming sort of lauded by everybody around the world at this stage? Because obviously in the UK, we always love discovering new bands and sort of new sounds. And there was this sort of a sense of always excitement if anybody from America was released and stuff. Especially we obviously all love John Peel at this stage. So if John Peel played something, we all sort of would say that's good enough for me. So did you sort of find yourself becoming incredibly popular at this, this point in your life? Yes. In the UK, a guy named Andy Kershaw was playing us continually, and that got us going, and that, that was different. Then, then fanzines were writing about us, and we got on the cover of the New Musical Express. I got my New Musical Express it's framed over there. And uh, that we more Andy Kershaw than, than John Peel, and that was just night and day because air plays everything. I mean, people, you know, the average person, so, there are some punters that like pop music like yourself or myself so much that they'll take a punt on a band and go see them or maybe even buy a record just on reputation. Most people, 98% of the pop music world wants to hear it before they go to the gig or buy the album. So airplay from Andy Kershaw was uh, the oxygen of publicity, as Mrs. Thatcher said once. Yes, that's, that's, um, I'm sure I, I didn't catch that one, but I'm sure she would have said it. What was it like then sort of after the success of your debut album, trying to follow it up for the, the sort of, the second release, because it's well, always quite a tricky one. Yeah, well, the, the State of Our Union album is our best-selling album, but it's not our best album. It's just one of those crazy things. And uh, it is a terrific record, in my opinion, but the mix is bad. And it's that's a whole story for a whole other show. I mean, everybody was 
we'd been away from home for so long that the album was recorded in, in England. And first off, uh, I'm trying to remember. Anyway, all three of the band left. They went home. And then the producer had to go do another project. So it was me and an engineer named Neil King mixing the album. No one else. And the first mix we turned in to Chris Blackwell Allen Records wasn't any good. So he said, mix it again. So we did it again. And that's the mix you hear now. And it's still not very good. But I, I and it's kind of my fault because it was just me and Neil King doing the mixing. But the point was, you know, everyone split. It was crazy. Everyone wanted to go home and see their girlfriend or see their parents or whatever they wanted to do. Tom was married. He wanted to go home and see his wife. So I wish we could remix it. Maybe we we'll Yes. But, um, yes, because Will Birch, he was the one who did the book on Nick Lowe recently, didn't he? Yes. I didn't. So yes. there you go. I didn't turn. Um, yes. someone else. So he had to go. He had to leave. So the project was just crazy. Tom went home to his wife first. That's what happened. Then Greg went home. Will went to do the next album he was producing. I can't remember who it was. So Will's taken up. And then Stephen was with me for a few days mixing. And then he had to go home. So it was just crazy. Yes. We were young and dumb and you make stupid mistakes. And that was a stupid mistake. Yes, a tricky one. But then, you know, I, I did an interview with John Porter, who was a producer, who rescued the sure. Smiths' first ever album because they, I think they had a friend who mixed it and um, it wasn't very good. And they said, look, here's a bit more money. Get John Porter to see if he could sort of sort out it. And it always st still says, still sounds quite muddy. It doesn't have that kind of clarity that um, the latter albums had or the, or the, the, the recordings they did at uh, the BBC made avail with people like... Um, Del Griffith from Mott the Hoople, which was always quite yeah. nice. And did you feel kind of excited at the mid-80s? Because obviously this is the height of a lot of great music and there's all that yes. scene that started to develop from Jason and the Scorchers and the Green on Red was happening and we had the Rain Parade. But we also had Indie Pop with the Smiths. I love the Smiths, by the way. <laughs> um, you know, there was a great sense of optimism and, and you know, independent labels happening. Did you feel a little bit of a wave of, like, something magical was in the air? Yes. I mean, I had the time of my life. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I mean, it, I was always amazed, like, uh, one of the bands missing his girlfriend all the time. Tom, understandably, had a wife and child. He was sad to be on the road so much because he wanted to be with his wife and child which is perfectly normal and, and and very admirable that tom was that way he's a good father good good uh, uh husband and i on the other hand i wish the tours were longer i loved it i loved going out i loved playing for people i loved people calling my name i loved the applause uh i sometimes you'd be in a record store a music store and somebody would recognize you and it'd be kind of a pain in the neck but mostly i was having the time of my life and uh, I don't complain about it at all. I mean, no, absolutely. I thought it was great. It was a wonderful time. And when the band's together these days, because the live show's as good as ever right now, I feel that feeling again. I wish we played more often. But the drummer of the Long Riders, Greg Souders, has a very serious job at Warner Chapel uh, Music Publishing. He's a song A&R guy. He signs songwriters. So we can't get Greg very often. So we don't get to play as often as I'd like. That's but I loved it. I, I, yeah, I loved the mid '80s. I loved hobnobbing with I don't know REM. That just popped in my head. I loved yes, it. I loved it. Nice one. There you go. What about Miles Copeland? Did you ever come across Miles on many, I many, 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 many times? Miles Copeland employed John Guderi, and John Guderi was our manager. 
and Guarneri took Miles to see us, and Miles said, "No, they're they're not for IRS records, and they're not for front." When, uh, what was his label called? I don't know. They're not for faulty records, and they're not for IRS records. I don't I don't really like them, but he was always kind to me, and he obviously had his uh, uh, mitts on the Bangles early on. They did an EP for him, and he worked with the Alarm and Squeeze, and I knew all those bands, so I would see him. I saw Miles a lot. I had a lot of respect for him, still do. Yes, absolutely. Nice, nice. He's got a lovely story when he had a lunch with Jeanette from the Concrete Blonde. He was scared for his life, so he I think he took a knife with him just in case she attacked him and killed him. But Why they, was she they... mad at him? <laughs> Pardon? Why was Jeanette Napolitano mad at Miles mad at Miles Copeland? Because he he she he had promised that they would finance a video and then that wasn't going to happen. And then she said, look, that is going to happen. You you promised us the money to do a video. And and I think he was a bit freaked out. This was the early 90s. She was probably yeah. very scary at that stage in life. How did you cope with the, as the musical trends of the 80s started to change again, and you're obviously going from place to place, but, you know, in the UK, you know, we had the indie pop world. There was also that Trevor Horn production sound, which was very sort of, you know, bit horrible really um but then you know the drugs changed the ecstasy came along the dance scene came along you know for musicians it's often quite difficult to sort of work out where to go and you've got your third album coming up and it's kind of well, 90 we, yeah i mean uh, nothing I, I i didn't we didn't shift at all we just did what we did i'm not uh i thought madchester looked like a lot of fun but it was nothing i wanted to participate in i, I for one I'm suspicious when, when a pop group does what they do and all of a sudden they change just to be on the bandwagon. For instance, the Beach Boys did a like a 12-minute version or 18-minute version of uh, Here Comes the Night and the Kinks disco version. And the Kinks did a disco song called Superman because the Superman movie with Christopher Reeves was in the theater and disco was happening. So the Kinks did this, wish I could fly like Superman. It's like... You know, it's embarrassing. They, that's not what those guys do. So when disco comes in or Manchester comes in, it's like, it's if, if we're not in fashion, it's too bad because we don't, you know, we're not the kind of band that says, oh, we better do that. Yes, this I, is true. REM uh, were told by Miles Copeland uh, to have one sort of danceable track on an album and they'd have that, I can't get there from here kind of thing. And, uh, that was their sop to that sound. But other than that, I, I agree. It's, you can't, it doesn't, you know, all of a sudden if you're the Ramones, you just can't do that kind of thing. It doesn't make sense. No, absolutely. What was the atmosphere like with the band when you were recording Two Fisted Tales in, in this kind of period? Were they? Well, we thought it was going to be a big hit. I, we were stunned that it wasn't a big hit. The first side, the first side A of Two Fisted Tales is the, probably the most solid music we ever made. Side two is not that great it's weak it doesn't have all good songs um but side a of two fisted tales is a terrific record and i was surprised it wasn't a big hit but the record label by that time uh the guy that had signed this david was uh sacked so uh it, for not because of us because of something else so the guy that had signed us to ireland was gone and some of the people that hated that guy turned their venomous eyes on us because they, we reminded uh, them of the ANR guy that signed us that they'd summarily dismissed. So uh, we were uh, 
kicked around and the second album wasn't pushed. It's it's a nasty story. I'll, I'll tell you one story that happened on it. I was at, we came over to London to play and uh, I was saying, why isn't the album being reviewed? Why isn't the album being reviewed? And this guy who's now dead uh, was fobbing me off. And one of his secretaries came out to the lobby where I was getting a cup of tea and she's almost crying. She said, can you, can you step outside, Sid? And I said, yeah, sure. So we went outside and I thought she was going to say something horrible. Like uh, one of the guys had been fresh with her, been, you know, I, I was braced for something really bad. She said, you know, I, she worked for the head of A&R at Island Records, our label. And the head of A&R, excuse me, the head of publicity at Island Records told her, don't send out the Longwriters album and don't bother sending out the single. Top that. Our wow. record label. And I said, are you sure? And she says, I'm positive. And I said, okay, go back inside and I'll wait about 20 minutes. Then I'll go in there and I won't tell them who told me that. So she went inside and was busying herself. And I acted like I was, and I went back in and raised hell about it. And the guy admitted it. He admitted it. He said, yep, we don't care about you. We're not sending out the LP. We're not sending out the, the single. And so uh, anyway, it's, a, it's an ugly story. So I almost strangled the guy. And he hired the late Philip Hall, God rest his soul. He hired the late Philip Hall, who helped break the Manic Street Preachers. Yes, whole Philip nothing. Hall at the time wasn't a manager. Philip Hall at the time was a... Uh, PR uh, publicity guy, and he hired Philip Hall, and Philip Hall took over, but it was too late. And although Philip Hall did the best he could, we got a few reviews in a few magazines. You know, they they on purpose screwed us over, and you know that's it's it's unbelievable. And we did, you know, I don't know what to say. I had no harsh words of these people, but it was because we were represented by a guy that they didn't like. So they just imagine putting out an album and not trying to sell it i mean my god that's so weird isn't it it's um that's terrible that's terrible, terrible. so was so by the end of the year had the band just about had enough of it was that the yeah you know because you'd gone from uh, 84 85 86 and 87 was just a nightmare so Stephen quit in i think august of 87 and we trundled and tom had quit already and we trundled along for a while and at christmas 87 we just called it a day Fuck it. Yes, my God, that's it. How did, how did you at this stage feel about what direction to go into next? Because your identity was so much part of this band. and well, this... I, I, uh, I just, it wasn't a pleasant time. I mean, I was just, I was all at sea. And I think any young man or woman that's a singer can realize, you know, you, you've built it up. I think we formed the band Thanksgiving 81. And you built it up 82, 83, 84, it's starting to, Native Sons comes out, you're starting to get some dividends. 85 was a glorious year. 86 was pretty damn good. And 87, when we finished the album in February of 87, I thought for sure that by Christmas or say within a year, say February of 88, that I would be some sort of minor Joe Strummer, minor Paul Weller, famous noted figure. That it was Yes. Strong. And I was astonished that we were broken up by Christmas. Astonished. They wanted a third album. It's odd. The band, everyone quit, but Greg and I, the drummer and myself. And a little known fact is, Island Records wanted a third album from us. And uh, like idiots that we are, Greg and I should have made them that third album. I mean, you know, you never know. And we 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 thought we'd just, you know, lick our wounds and go somewhere else. And there was an uh, uh, an offer, tentatively by Capitol Records to our uh, attorney Gary Stamler. And uh, 
I don't know. I don't know what happened, but it was stupid. Island wanted a third album on Island Records, and Greg and I, I don't know why we said no looking back. We should have done it, because you never know. You might have had a fluke hit. Yes, absolutely. These these things do happen, especially as the... After that ups and downs, you had a lot of material, you had a lot of emotion to get off. So yeah. yourself, how did you then sort of navigate those next couple of years before your next musical adventure? They were terrible. I mean, all sorts of L.A. labels. I, Greg and I recorded stuff, and, and I know the other guys did too, and we all got turned down. I mean, Triple X Records uh, was, a, was a nice indie label of the day. They turned us down, and I mean, everywhere you went was no, 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 no. You weren't the uh, young, hip, new kids on the block anymore. They, they, Jane's addiction and that kind of thing was uh, the big LA sound at that time. And I saw, oh yeah, Seattle started to appear, and yeah. the Pixies and the Breeders, yeah, yeah. Pixies, and uh, and the the, the 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 scene had shifted. So there you are. Yes, there was a marvelous piece five years ago in the New York Times by written on John Sebastian of the Love and Spoonful. And he talked about every band has its time. The Love and Spoonful's time was 1966. They couldn't do anything wrong. And they had like 11 top 40 singles over three years or whatever it was. And 66 was their uh, apogee. Yes. And he said, since then, everyone struggled. It's going to struggle. That was their time. They, you, you know, that was their time. And if you can have a... Z- definitely 84 to 86. A zeitgeist. Well, I think that's what I've noticed with a few artists that I particularly liked in the 70s. Their, some of their 80s work was very tricky. And I think somehow in, the, in, in their zeitgeist moment, they were just doing what they wanted to do. And every, the stars lined up and it was brilliant. And then it was like, oh, my God, what do I do now? It's another decade. There's a whole new wave. Because every three to five years, there's a new wave of young kids and a new, slightly new sound. And I think with some people, they, they sort of go, right, who's the hit producer? Where's, what studio do I need to go to? What do I need to copy? And for once, they often get a bit kind of confused about sort Sort of what they're doing and so some of their work can sound a little bit like a, a covers band doing their material I, th- I think the thing to do when you have a strong sound and a strong artistic tenor is just stay there and eventually the public comes around again I mean uh, the band with Robbie Robertson were huge in the in the in the uh, 70s and deservedly so and then they couldn't get arrested and then these last few years there's been this renewal of interest in him. There was a guy named Gene Clark who was in the birds and oh his yes. Solo, his solo career didn't amount to Hill of Beans. Yet now there's this growing uh interest in Gene Clark and <laughs> the, the, your time comes around again. And I think it's just tough, but you have to sort of wait for your time to come around. It's what the blues guys do. They yes. don't stop playing blues. They just wait for their time to come around again. I mean BB King just goes on the circuit and plays Vegas and then he has another spurt of attention when you two gave him uh when love comes to town and he's back up in the top of the thing again and then he you know just they do what they do and that's that's analogous to myself and the long riders yes well i think with lemmy in motorhead i think he just thought right we're just gonna thank god for germany the germans love us we'll we'll keep playing yeah, there I and mean, eric burden was the same way eric burden sang what he sang and he stayed in germany and spain primarily and didn't do a lot of english work or uh, and he did some American work because he had these markets that loved him. And Japan loved Eric as well. So, yes. you know, you just, <clears throat> I'm suspicious of acts that all of a sudden change just because that's the way the wind's blowing. That's not really being an artist. 
No. No, I know Neil Young often would say you've got to follow your muse and keep yeah. keep true to it. So then the Cole, Cole Polt Porters appeared in 1999, no, 1991. How did this band form together and how did that sort well, of it marry? It kind of long rider's light, L-I-T-E, and then it evolved into this acoustic thing because the drummer, you know, we had a nice following uh, uh, playing sort of in the shadow of the long rider's sound. We had a nice fun. We played with, uh, did some dates with Erasure and, uh, excuse me, Elastica uh, and uh, all sorts of crazy things that we toured Germany and, you know, we toured Spain. It was not bad. And then the drummer had a, was hit by a car in the middle of the day, crossing an intersection, a car just ran him over and it was speeding and, and uh, he couldn't, he could hear the car coming. But because of the tall buildings, it was echoing. He couldn't quite figure out where it was coming from. And the next thing he knew, he turned and he was hit by a car and he almost died. So he was in a coma for about 30 days. And when he came out of the coma, he made us promise that we wouldn't have the band without him, without the drummer. So we made that promise, yet he couldn't drum for almost two years. So to keep our promise to this drummer, who's in a hospital bed for years, months, 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 um, we became an acoustic band and we never looked back. Yes. And we never did a gig with a drummer again. We just became an acoustic band. That's amazing. So you did. True story. It's, you did, but you were very prolific, weren't you? In sort of a very short period of time, you released about four, four different. Six, kind of, six albums. Six Cold albums. Boys did six acoustic albums and I think four electric albums. And we never, it's funny, the guy would have, it's the whole thing's crazy. He was hit in the middle of the day. He was not jaywalking. Um, he only he didn't die because he landed in front of a doctor's car who called a what's called a dragonfly helicopter, which came from St. Bart's Hospital and landed in the middle of the intersection. And they put him on this, you know, it's a hospital helicopter and two guys get out. and They put him on this stretcher. And they went straight up and went to St. Bart's Hospital, avoiding all the traffic. It's, it's, the whole story's crazy. And we waited and waited and waited for him to get better. And finally, we said, well, we'll just play some acoustic gigs. The next thing I knew, we'd had an acoustic band for 17 years. <laughs> and then I had to draw, I draw a line under it about four years ago, just before COVID. I said, I can't do this acoustic thing anymore. I want to go back to the Long Riders. Yes, absolutely. But then in the meantime, you, you sort of write quite a few books, don't you? You've, you've yeah. sort of been very well published at this stage. The, uh, the, the book, my most successful book is called Million Dollar Bash. It's about Bob Dylan's basement tapes, and it's going to be uh, reissued this year. It's out of print. We've sold out two different versions. We're going to have a third. In, where's three? A third version will come out later this year with uh, a few minor errors corrected, and I'm really looking forward to it. Yes. So then after the, the 90s, how do you navigate the, the O years and the, the teen years? Um, I think you get into a certain rhythm. I mean, this is, you realize this is what I do. The long riders usually tour about nine weeks out of the year, and that's not enough to really keep going. So I try and do a tour of bluegrass or a tour of some form of acoustic music, and I try and do solo dates. Before COVID, I was doing about 62 shows a year, which for, you know, a real major band isn't that many. But for someone in a cult, that's pretty good. Yes. Then COVID really killed it. So I'm now building it back up. Well, the first year of COVID, I did three gigs. 
And the second year of COVID, I think I did eight. So that was weird. But um, I try and play more than once a week somewhere, you know, if you add it all together. Yeah, I think I talked to a guy called Bob Andrews recently who was in yes. some somewhere sort of in, I don't know, Arizona. And I think he's he's uh, he just likes to go out and play at some bar once a week, you know, probably gets paid a bit. I mean, he's in his mid-70s now, so, uh, and he was in Brinsley Schwartz and... Uh, Graham Parker and the rumors. So he he's enjoying himself. So then, just to sort of talk about the the reissue, do you all your material? Is it mostly owned by Cherry Red Records? Uh, the Long Riders own some of the Long Riders stuff, and the rest of the stuff is owned by Universal, which is licensing it to Cherry Red. Right. So is this going to be the first of your three albums with uh, the Long Riders? Um. Yeah, I mean, they, the Cherry Red are, are keen on box sets and everything we do, you bet. Yes, they do like it. So then, so 2019, we didn't know what was going to come. You thought, right, we've got three, four years to sort of get all this project sort of done. Was it nice to sort of go back and um, sort of look at it all and sort of add little bits and pieces and the it live was, album? But it's it's bittersweet because Tom Stevens died. He was a real archivist and he had all the tapes of everything and he had live shows a go go, and it's just sad because uh, the other two, Stephen and Greg, um, you know, they don't have a lot of input in the reissues. It was Tom and I doing the. I mean, that you know, they're welcome to, but they're not. It's not their bag. Tom and I kept all this junk that's in my house and his house, and now it's just me because Tom's deceased. So that's kind of sad, but uh, it is nice to have these packages out because you know, one day I won't be here, and my son, who I was helping with his homework. And my daughter, who's sort of out in the world now, she's in her mid-20s, they will have something that they can look upon and read in the booklet that dad did this and dad did that. That makes me feel very, very happy. Yes, we all get to that point of archiving one day. When you sort of, uh, it was like 2004, was that the moment, a bit like the return of the Magnificent Seven, where there was more interest in the band because of the past? There's no real point to do a reunion until we broke up. There's no real point. And in 2004... I'm trying to remember who called us up first. Neil O'Brien called us up and said, I can get a tour for the Long Riders. And I thought, well, why not? And we had a riot. We all enjoyed it so much, but I didn't think it would, you know. So we did this 2004 tour for about three and a half weeks, four weeks. And it was great fun. And that was it until 2009 when we got offered some gigs in America. And I thought, well, that's it for a few years or maybe we'll play again and again. And then the next thing I knew, around 2011, more offers. And now, since 2014, we're uh, a growing band again with two new albums since uh, 2014 of new material, uh, Psychedelic Country Soul and September November on Cherry Red, both of those albums. And I hope we'll make a third album before we pop our clogs. It's It's been a really... An Indian summer, I suppose one could say. Yes. And what, and what was Glastonbury like? Was that the first time you had played Glastonbury in 2000? I've played Glastonbury several times. I've never had a bad time there. And the Cole Porters have played Glastonbury once as an electric band and once as a bluegrass band. I've never had a bad time at Glastonbury. I, uh, that's wrong. We played it twice as an electric band and once as an as a acoustic band. I've, I must have played Glastonbury seven times now. I love it. Love. I would imagine. Did you ever play in the late 80s or the 80s? Uh, the 80s Long Riders never played Glastonbury. We we didn't understand what it was. I remember being in the Columbia Hotel and guys from Echo and the Bunnymen 
and a band called The Alarm were telling us that this offer we got for Glastonbury was was good and we should do the show. And the band was saying, we've been on the road since March. We want to go home. And I was thinking, God, these guys are British. They must know more about Glastonbury than we do. And of course, years later, I found out, yeah, we should have gone. We should have, we should have stayed in England for the, you know, it was only like 10 days away. And they, I, you know, we should have stayed in England and just killed 10 days and played Glastonbury and then gone home. But we didn't. And there you go. No, absolutely. What was it like sort of recording the first album after the 80s, the one that you did? Your we recorded fourth. it with a guy who recorded the last album, Two Fisted Tales, Ed Stasium. He was a mainstay of the Ramones. He joined the Ramones team for the second album and left after, uh, I think, Subterranean Jungle or one of those albums. He's on like eight Ramones albums of the first 11, something like that, or seven albums of the first nine, something like that. I think he and, also uh, worked with Motorhead as well, didn't he? He worked with everybody. He worked with uh, the Smithereens and had hits. He worked with... Uh, uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips and uh, Midnight Train to Georgia. He Ed's got gold records on his house like nobody's business, and uh, and he's done a lot of TV and movie soundtrack stuff. And he, he's the greatest. I mean, he's he's or, you know he's a professional. He doesn't he's not writing for magazines to tie himself over. He's the real deal. So when you got that deal, did Cherry Red Records put up the you know the the money the contract to um, record that and um, release it? Sign a deal with Cherry Red. I think we'll sign a third one. We just need to block out the time. Yes. And was it was it kind of magical to be in the studio and working with the guys again? Yes, because there was a sense of unfinished business when a band that's you know doing well breaks up foolishly and prematurely. If you allow me to say that, um, yeah, it was just a, a, a sense of we're writing a wrong here. We're writing a wrong, and it's unfinished business and. Uh, Let's do the best we can. And then Psychedelic Country Soul came out. It was the number one alt-country album on Amazon. And it was the number one uh, alt-country album on the official British uh, charts. They have, uh, uh, we, it was like the number six indie album. It's number one on the alt-country uh, British charts, the official one. And so it was a great success, and we were thrilled. I mean, it was just a sense of, uh, you know, we, we well, the writer Johnny Black is a known writer over here in England. He wrote, the long riders were the perfectly right band at the perfectly wrong time. And I agree with him. Yes, because years later, old, um, old country becomes such a sort of it's genre. A it's a thing. I know. tell me about like, you know, Wilco and even before then Uncle Tupelo. And I thought, well. You know, we were there first, but that's life. And the drive-by truckers, we all became obsessed with all those drive bands. Drive-by truckers, terrific band. But I mean, what are the drive-by truckers of the Kings of Leon? But, if you will, cousins of the Long Riders that came along later once this genre was established. When we were out there, we were fighting against uh, all sorts of crazy-ass stuff. Synth, synth pop was the worst, and that was well, the you know, Yes, well, we had that, uh, you know... I suppose the Trevor Horn production sound that uh, dominated a lot of the 80s. But then I think that's why people loved Green on Red and early REM, because there was that kind of acoustic vibe that um, has an earthiness to it. What was it like then, your your lockdown period, as a sort of creative person who suddenly realised their calendar was going to be... I, I collected my favourite stories for a book, which I'm still editing. I haven't finished it. I spent a lot of time... My son's lessons were online, so I had to become a school teacher. Yes. It was very difficult. 
And then uh, I wrote a book, which I'm going through the second pass of it, and that'll be my final pass. And then I'm going to someone will publish it. I've already had a couple of offers for it, so that's what I did. Yes. So with September, November, was this all recorded in your own little homes and studios? Set no, and no, we went to California for both September, November, and uh, Psychedelic Country Soul. They're both recorded in the studio with Ed Stasian in California. Blimey. But did you rehearse and have them all written sort of beforehand? Yeah. And then we spend like two days in the, in a rehearsal studio, not a recording studio, with Ed saying, put this here, put that there. Then we go to the studio and record the backing tracks and all that. Blimey. And that was it, actually. So then, so now, coming up to your current time, this box set's come out, but you're also doing quite a lot of dates, aren't you, with Peter as well, aren't you, Peter Case? Yeah, I've known Peter since August 1978. We met at a, a punk club in L.A. called The Mask. And there were four masks because uh, the police kept shutting down where the damn venue was. And uh, we've been friends ever since. You know, we were acquaintances. We met in August 78. I was going to buy a guitar from him or sell the guitar. We, we debate this story. We, we know it's a Mose Wright Ventures guitar. And... Uh, I can't remember if I was selling it to him or buying it. We always argue that point, but we were friends ever since. And uh, I don't know. We just, it's at this stage of the game, I like playing gigs with my friends. It's always great to meet new people. I'm not knocking that, but I want to do tours with my friends. Simply. Yes. So you got that UK and Europe tour with Peter, but you also got the Long Riders and then you got some yeah. solo dates as well. And Cole Solo Porter. dates. I'm doing a, in, uh, in May, I'm doing a week of, uh, songwriting in uh tuscany it's called sid's uh wallapalooza and we're gonna do a week on how to write long writer styled songs which is gonna be a great fun or so I hope. yes and i did i did sort of notice that next year feeling very forward thinking you've got a date in beckles suffolk yeah the guy books a year in advance and he said go figure go figure you've got to do it god that's that's all on the 8th of so february one of the biggest differences between now and the old days is people book eight, nine year, 15 months in advance. Crazy, isn't it? Crazy. It is, it is amazing. Yes, but nice to have it on your calendar. If you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self starting out, is there anything in particular that you would have said, yes, this is a good idea? I would have, the advice I would give 16-year-old Sid Griffin is, be steadfast and have courage. Don't doubt yourself. Because I've wasted, like many, many people in the arts, be they songwriters, writers, filmmakers, sculptors, painters, actors, like many people in the arts, I've wasted time on self-doubt and second-guessing. Mm -hmm. That is a waste of time. That's yes. What I tell myself, be steadfast, be brave, be courageous, move forward. Don't waste your time second-guessing and should I have done this and should I have done that? Waste of time. Yes, wise choice. What? Yes, very wise words. Well, look, and yeah, just if, if, if you were to pick your three songs that you would have said they were your fondest tracks that you've done with any of your bands, um, which ones would they be? I, I will tell you. Uh, one is by The Unclaimed. It's called The Acid Song, and it's a piss take of psychedelia that I wrote for the unclaimed that years not only did i enjoy playing it with the band and it's people liked the song you know they would applaud when it started not probably realizing it was a bit of a piss take but years later i found out that the undertones 
in 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 Derry in Northern Ireland had an offshoot band, and I can't remember the name of the offshoot band, where they played that song, which made me so happy. And so I would say that song, the acid song by the 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 uh by the uh uh undertones, and then uh I would say Looking for Lewis and Clark by the Long Riders, because that's what we're known for. Although I must put an asterisk by it. My favorite Longwriter song is I Had a Dream, written by Stephen McCarthy, our guitar player. But anyway, you asked me for three of my songs. Yeah. So that's the first two. And the third song of mine that I would be so proud of, I guess, is... Um, oh, boy, that's a good one. I guess it's That's What They Say About Love, which is on the most recent album. It was written about my missus. Oh, fantastic. Those three. Those Excellent. Three. About love, right? I'll make a note. I'll go and I'll go and listen to them in greater detail. Anyway, look and all your publications. You said they're being reprinted, and you've got several books coming out still. Yeah, I've got the the audit, sort of autobiography coming out, and the the million dollar bash, which came out with a black cover, was reissued with some more information, which I found out about Bob Dylan with an orange cover, and now it's going to come out later this year with God knows what color cover, and I'm excited about that. My other three books sold okay, but they're not, they're out of print. That's that. That's the end of that. But look, well, look, Sid, thank you ever so much. I'll come and hopefully come and see you in Beckles because actually I'm kind of in that area. So there you go. Wait, February, whatever the hell it is. That guy's a lovely guy. It's a fine venue. I would imagine it must be lovely to get these little gigs. Do you take the train, by the way, and then get a taxi? Well, I drove up there because I take a lot of instruments. I, 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 I think just playing the guitar is boring. I take the banjo and I take the mandolin and blah, blah, blah. Yes. Well, look, that's great. Well, look, thank you for your time. Thank and you. um, and uh, yes, have a lovely I evening. I apologize for being late. That's okay. We can cope. We can cope. Okay, take care. See thank you later. You. Sorry about the Spanish. No, that's fine. It's got to be done. Okay, see you later. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Sid Griffin for giving me the time for that. And as I said, I'll put the links of his um, website and also the Long Riders in the notes below. This has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? Anyway, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbeam. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.